I have found out beat news in depth for you. Good evening, happy holidays, and welcome to Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. In February 2013, professional soccer player Robbie Rogers became the first U.S. member of a professional sports team to come out as a gay man. And this month, he visited Santa Rosa High School and spoke with students and community members about his journey and his new book, Coming Out to Play. Robbie's with us tonight, and we'll share more of his story. And in the second half of our hour, we'll talk with a married couple from Minneapolis, Obi Ballinger and Jabin Swanson. Not only are they married, but they're both ordained Christian pastors. They'll share their story and thoughts about how to reconcile faith with sexuality. All of this is coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, December 28th, 2014. I have found Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. It's our last Outbeat News segment of 2014, so we thought we should take a look back at seven of the top LGBT news stories making headlines this year. Gay and lesbian couples can now get married in 35 states and counting. Almost immediately after the U.S. Supreme Court announced this fall that they would not hear appeals in several marriage ban cases, the number of states allowing same-sex marriages grew to 35 from 19, as well as the District of Columbia. On an international level, Finland became the 12th European nation to legalize same-sex marriage when it passed its gay marriage law at the end of November and a handful of other countries, including Mexico, approved same-sex marriage laws as well. Countries like Slovakia, Australia, and Colombia are slated to vote on the matter in the coming year. The LGBT community gained the official support of the United Nations this year. In September, the UN passed a resolution condemning violence and discrimination against people based on gender identity or sexual orientation by a vote of 25 to 14. While not an effectual policy, The resolution was hugely symbolic in light of the spread of homophobia and gender-related violence in countries like Uganda, Russia, and India in recent years. And President Obama expanded rights and protections for LGBT people when he signed two important executive orders in 2014 designed to expand protections for the LGBT community. The first happened in July when the president signed an order outlawing federal contractors from discriminating against a person's gender identity or sexual orientation. This order reached over 1 million LGBT workers across the country, making it the single largest expansion of LGBT workplace protections in our country's history. The second occurred in November when the president announced an executive order designed to reform current immigration law. While it is critical to note that 267,000 LGBT immigrants will not be covered by this reform, another 200,000 LGBT immigrants are now eligible for lawful residence and cities pushed through their own non-discrimination protection laws. This year, 38 cities in America were deemed perfect by the HRC, scoring 100% on the organization's Municipal Equality Index. This is 13 more cities with a perfect score than there were in 2013. Of the 84 million people living in a Municipal Equality Index-rated municipality, 34 million now have more inclusive laws at the municipal level than they do at the state level. In an era where one-third of the states with marriage equality lack critical non-discrimination protections for the LGBT community, this is of critical importance. And this year, Obamacare expanded to include more LGBT people. The LGBT community is nearly 5% less likely to have health care insurance than non-LGBT Americans. The expanded access afforded to the LGBT community this year, especially through Obamacare, was phenomenal. In 2014, insurance companies will no longer be able to discriminate against anyone due to a pre-existing condition. And because of the law, insurers can no longer turn away someone just because he or she is lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. And Pope Francis signaled a shift toward inclusion in religion. This year, the Pope has spoken in support of the LGBT community, most recently with his so-called gay earthquake statement, beginning famously with a line, homosexuals have gifts and qualities to offer to the Christian community. This is very good news for millions of religious LGBT people and their allies around the world. The Pope needs to do better, of course, because conservative strands of Christianity and other religions continue to lead anti-gay crusades. But the slightly more inclusive tone is a good start in terms of helping LGBT faithful feel like they have a right to believe in whichever God they choose, 
without judgment or condemnation from church leadership. The media outlets earned accolades for their LGBT representations and diversity, from gay sex in Shondaland to the critically acclaimed web series Transparent, 2014 was an amazing year for LGBT people, specifically in television. According to GLAD's Where We Are on TV report, out of 813 prime-time broadcast scripted series regulars, 32 will be LGBT this year, or 3.9%. This is up from just 3.3% last year. But perhaps more importantly, LGBT children and adults have the right to see characters who look and act just like them on their favorite TV shows and movies. These positive role models are essential, and they also just make for great television. As the runaway success of shows like The Fosters, Orange is the New Black, and Transparent clearly show. If 2014 is any indication, in 2015 we will see nationwide recognition of marriage equality and the expansion of LGBT rights, and that's something to celebrate. For a calendar of upcoming LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. As this is our last news segment for 2014, I'd like to take a moment to thank all of our news partners who, throughout the year, help keep our community informed of breaking news stories impacting the LGBT community. My thanks to The Advocate, LGBTQ Nation, The Huffington Post, The Bay Area Reporter, and of course, GaySonoma.com. We have live feeds from all of these sources on our website at OutBeatNews.com, your source for LGBT news from here in the North Bay and beyond. And be sure to follow us all week long on Facebook and Twitter. Links are available at OutBeatNews.com. For Gary Carnavelli, I'm Greg Moralia. Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. LA Galaxy professional soccer star Robbie Rogers always knew he was gay, but hid in the closet from fear of being tossed out of the locker room and from a sport he truly loves. But in February 2013, all of that changed when Rogers came out publicly and became the first gay man to play on a professional sports team here in the United States. This month, Rogers helped lead the LA Galaxy to victory in Major League Soccer's National Championship game against Boston. He also launched a tour to share his new book, Coming Out to Play. And here to tell us more about the book is Robbie Rogers. Robbie, congratulations on the big win this month, and welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, let's get right to it. Uh, I really love the introduction in the book. So why don't you begin by talking about the role family played in your life growing up? Um... I'm from a very conservative Catholic family. There's uh, five kids, and and we're a very close family. So, um, you know, in a big family, I think anyone that knows that that has a lot of siblings that you do everything together. And when you're at the dinner table, there's a bunch of people fighting over food. And when you're going to soccer games, there's a bunch of people fighting over who's going to sit shotgun. So, it was fun, but it was um, you know pretty crazy as well because there's just so many of us. I bet. Well, you grew up as a Catholic and described your family as politically conservative. Uh, what role did the church play, and how did that conflict when you discovered you were gay? I mean, what, what messaging did you hear from the pulpit, and and how did that impact you? Uh, I mean, I, I just, you know, the, the obvious ones that, you know, being gay was a sin, and, and you know, marriage between two men was, was not possible and wasn't healthy for our society, and and uh, just a lot of different things, but um, I'm still a religious person. I wouldn't call myself a Catholic now, but I, I believe that you know there's a reason that I was created this way, and that I have this platform to kind of come out and be an out athlete, and hopefully uh, help people with my experience. So mm-hmm. I think the Catholic Church is, is changing, but I think you know very slowly. Ever so slowly. So, tell me, did that ever create a problem or a conflict with you and your parents? You know, I know a lot of parents, they want to really hold on to their religious faith, and they find themselves in conflict when their own kids come out. Was that a wedge issue for you? I mean, my again, my parents have been supportive from the moment I told them, so uh, I'm sure when they're not with me, they, you know, ask questions to themselves, and, and I mean, especially when I was just first coming out, but to me, they were they were very supportive, and 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 just ask questions and, and wanted to help me through this whole process. So uh, we haven't had any issues uh, in that way. Well, good for them. I mean, a parent's support is so incredibly important, especially when someone first comes out. And in the book, you talk extensively about your journey coming out. 
at what age did you first realize you were gay? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I think probably I knew for sure when I was around like 14 or something like 13, 14 years old. But from a really young age, uh, the words like faggot or, or gay, and, and especially when they were used, kind of put someone down. Um, you know, as a slur, they really affected me. So I must have, I must have known, like deep down, that that I was, you know, possibly gay, just because I remember always getting like a, like a, like a clench or a cramp in my stomach when I heard those kind of words, and they felt so awful to me. So I must have known when I was really young. But I, I would say that that I was, you know, sure, certainly when I was uh, uh, probably 14 years old. Mm-hmm. So as you think back to that time, was there any role model that you? look to as an example of, of who you could be or anyone who showed you that you could be successful as an athlete and also be out and gay at the same time? No, there weren't. And, and that's one of the reasons why I decided to write a book because uh, I didn't have really any, especially, I mean, obviously there weren't any really gay athletes that were playing on like team sports that were out and, and just being themselves or at least none that I knew of. So, uh, you know, it made it even more difficult for me when I, when I became, you know, when I was so into soccer and became a professional athlete and deciding to come out, I was like, well, no one's really done this or not anyone that I know of or that I've read about. So it's difficult to kind of make plans and make decisions that way just because you don't have anyone to compare your life to. Right. And sports has always been such a huge part of your life. I mean, it is it is definitely part of your entire life story. And I would imagine that a lot of the messaging, a lot of what you witnessed in the locker room had to have played a huge part in keeping you in the closet. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in not now because I'm out and my team is very supportive and, and things are changing, but I mean, from the time I was, you know, I'd say 11 or 12 until you know, I came out, I always heard uh, things daily in locker rooms and, and uh you know, those things really scared me. Those things kind of scarred me and and made me build all this fear up that, that it wasn't going to be possible to be an out gay man and, and to play soccer. You know, I just had to choose one or the other. And for a while I chose soccer. And and I realized that uh, there's a lot of other things in life that are more important and definitely happiness and being honest with people is one of them. So um, I decided, obviously, to come out. But it must have been really hard to keep your secret. I mean, you played on so many different teams all over the world. How did you manage it? How did you keep your secret and still be part of the team, one of the guys? Uh, I mean, I did everything from um, date girls. I would, would lie. I would avoid questions. I would distance myself from teammates and friends. Uh, I mean, I did everything just because I was, again, so afraid to be, to be, uh, you know, someone thought I was gay or if, if, if uh, I just thought that wasn't going to be possible. So I just did everything to kind of you know, avoid those kind of situations. So do you think you pulled it off pretty well? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, I have never, I haven't really ever spoken to my team. So like I said, I mean, my, my family, you know, sometimes say, oh yeah, we didn't think about it. We, we, we didn't, you know, think you were gay or whatever. And then sometimes they'll have discussions with them and they're like, oh yeah, like this was a little weird. It was weird. Uh, but you didn't have like a serious relationship over a year or whatever. But, um, you know, I guess you'd have to talk to them. I mean, I'm not really quite sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in the book, you talked about how you never thought you could be out as a gay man and also a professional soccer player. What happened to change your perspective? Um, I think it was, well, it's like when I was just about to move to England, I was kind of, and I was just deciding like what I wanted to do with my life and how unhappy I was with even success that I had. You know, why was I not happy? I was, you know, living uh, life professional athlete, I was making good money, I could take care of myself, I could travel around the world and, you know, what was going on. So I just had a lot of time to myself to think about it and I think it was just all those moments of being myself by myself and and, and kind of realizing that things weren't going to change unless I did something and if that meant that I had to step away from soccer then so be it. But but it was worth uh, it was worth, you know, the risk of me coming out and possibly uh, having to step away from my sport and possibly being, uh, you know, not having the same relationship with my family. So I, w- I, w- I thought it was worth the risk. I thought, you know, I need to be real with people and, and get on with my life, but at least be open and, and create a world where I can be open with people. So 
Um, it's just a lot of those moments by myself of unhappiness that I realized I need to make a change. Mm. So it sounds like it was really a, a pretty thoughtful process for you. Yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, I, mean, I thought about it all the time, but it was a lot. I mean, thinking a lot about it when I was like 24, 25, that was kind of what like the changing point, and that's when I was living in England, and and I just you know realized I had to make a change. Well, let's go back to that moment then. It's October 2012. You're in a bar in England. What happened? I was just like sick of keeping it all inside and I was out with some friends and a girl just asked me uh, like cause I, some of her friends were gay and some were straight and, and I think she was interested in like going out to dinner with me or something so she just asked me if I was straight or gay and I just kind of said I'm gay and uh, just kind of just blurted out and it, it felt great but and I don't know what like kind of came over me but I, it, it was definitely you know at the point of my life where I was like I need to and I told you I had to make a change and mm-hmm. I was just ready for it so um it just came for a good time because it felt so great to say it. And I think it was like a month later that I came out to my to my family. Wow. And I think most people really planned that moment very carefully. And it sounds like for you, it was very spontaneous. Did you sort of freak out afterwards? No, I mean, I, I freak out. Not really. I, I, I um, just kind of, it felt really good, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and I think at that point, I was like, I was even like writing my journal, like, all right, like, how am I, am I going to come out, or who am I going to come out to first, and you know, which sibling, or what am I going to say to my parents? So, I was kind of planning it. It's just, you know, that opportunity came up first. So, well, good. You got to start somewhere, right? So, talk about your family. I mean, how did it go with telling them, and how did you approach it? Uh, I told my sister first. She's the oldest. She's my oldest sister. Sorry. Um, she uh, is kind of like the alpha. Alpha child in our family, so I just feel like I should tell her first. So obviously, she was very supportive and accepting of your news. I'm assuming, uh, did she then help you share the news with your parents, or did you do that on your own? No, I told my parents then. After that, I uh, same thing. I like wrote letters to them, and then I skyped them. I was in England, obviously. So after I told her, we just I just had to tell everyone. Kind of had to like get it all out. So were you surprised by the positive response and reaction? Yeah, I was surprised. I mean, I was surprised by the instant support and love that they showed me from the first second I told them. You know, again, I obviously was so afraid. That's why it took me 25 years to tell them. Um, so, uh, you know, I felt like now I feel like, oh, gosh, there's so much fear. And, like, what took me so long to do that? And, and I realized, like, you know, I, again, like I said earlier, I, there was so much, so many comments that I heard that, that built fear in me. But, but uh, looking back now, I, I wish I would have done it earlier. So what was it like being able now to date guys openly? You talked about having relationships with women earlier in your life, but what was it like being a 25-year-old teenager all over again? Yeah, that's, that's like you go through all the awkward phases of going on your first date and, and doing all that first stuff as a 25-year-old. It's like, I mean, it's, it's, it's like a comedy. I swear it's pretty ridiculous. But for me, it was just, again, like I didn't know. I never, I never went to a gay bar. I never kissed a guy. I never went on any dates. So I had to kind of just experience all that stuff and 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 it's a little sad that to experience with a 25 year old i think you know kids should feel safe and and free to to be themselves at a young age to kind of go through all that stuff you know in their schools or wherever in safe environments so that was uh, that was one of the things i was a little bit bummed out bummed about but um you know i'm happy at least that i didn't wait longer i mean uh you know everyone's coming out just comes at a different time but for me it was i was definitely ready at that age and and doing all that stuff the first time felt good afterwards, but it also was just a little sad that it, that it took so long. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally get it. Well, you had sort of a unique situation because not only did you have to figure out how to come out to your family as a professional soccer star and someone who has a public life, you also had to figure out how to come out to the world. Talk about that decision and and how you did it. I, I mean, I wasn't going to. I was going to let people find out um, just organically and, and sports is a small world and everyone talks so I knew I mean a lot of my best friends are guys I went to Olympics with or guys I played on the national team with so after I told them I knew people would find out but uh, I just started writing I think it was like two months after I came to my family I wrote this letter and I kept it on my desktop for another two months um, and just one day again like kind of like when I came out to that girl in the summer or in October I just uh, just felt like kind of the urge to like you know, just come out and just kind of make a statement and just be over with it and, and do it on my terms. So I 
posted like that kind of letter like social media and uh i mean it was out there and that you know felt so great it was you know all the weight off my shoulders and felt just like i freed myself from from a lie that, that i and a feeling that you know i just created mm-hmm. did you ever imagine that your coming out story would attract such international attention that it would be such a big deal no no i came out on a very selfish way, so, you know, for my happiness and for for myself to be able to build those relationships, you know, relationships that were honest and, and uh, you know, where I could actually be myself. So I wasn't trying to really help anyone. That wasn't, like, the goal. I'm happy that it happened that way. I mean, uh, I'm so blessed that my experience of, of being an athlete and coming out is, uh, I've been able to reach, you know, people around the world with it, but... But, uh, you know, I'd be lying if I said that, like, I had a plan to, like, help, you know, people because I, 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 I didn't, and, and uh, um, I was just doing it to be happy. That's so great. And I think a lot of our listeners can identify with what you said about that feeling of the weight being lifted off of your shoulders and finally being able to be free and to be who you are and, and to really be your true self. Let's go back to your sports career uh, because it's really quite extensive I'm not sure our listeners are familiar with all of the different venues and different places that you have played soccer. What are the ones that are most memorable to you uh, in terms of your experience as a professional athlete? Um, most memorable ones. Uh, I, in 2008, I uh, won a championship with, with the Columbus crew in MLS, and, and that was pretty special. But then also just going to the Olympics. Uh, I remember you know, the opening ceremonies and, and just being an Olympian. Um, that was pretty special, and, and my mom got to be there for that kind of stuff, so that was pretty cool, but, um, you know, I'd say those two were the, the most special to me. Yeah, that had to be pretty special, you know, knowing that you were representing the United States, your home country, and knowing that everybody back home was watching you. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, I think in any game when you're a professional or you're an athlete, it's, there's a lot of pressure, but, um, I mean, we put so much pressure on ourselves just because we wanted to do so well, and, and, um, so it was a special. It was a pretty you know, special time. So in the book, you you talked about your decision to leave college uh, to pursue a career in professional soccer. What happened to cause you to leave the U.S. and and play in Europe? Uh, well, I was playing. It was I think it was the summer of my fresh or going to sophomore year. I was playing the national team in in um, Northern Ireland in the Milk Cup, and there was a team watching me play there, and I had a pretty good tournament, so. I just like contacted my coach and my my college coach and offered me a contract. I mean, it was happened very quickly, and it was always a dream of mine to go play in Europe. And, and I wanted to turn pro. I was, you know, uh, super anxious. I was, I was, I don't know. I just really wanted to turn pro. Even it didn't matter like what kind of the cost was, and mm-hmm. I think uh, it didn't matter where it was or what they were offering me. But I, I had a great offer to go play in Holland and. And I took it, and uh, you know, even though I loved college so much, and we won a national championship that year, and I probably should have stayed for another year, I, um, I was just really excited to move to Holland. So, but I played over in Holland for about a year, and that was pretty difficult for me, just obviously struggling with my sexuality, but then just living in a country by myself in a small town and getting used to being a professional. Um, I uh, just was talking to my agent. I was like, you know, I'm not really playing that much here, and, and I was playing for the U20. World Cup team, and, and so I was like, you know, I need to go somewhere I can play all the time if I'm to develop. So I decided to come back to the MLS, and that's when I went to the club's crew. Now, you left professional soccer just before you came out as a gay man. Now you're back in the game. Talk about that. Do you see a difference in your performance now that you don't have that weight of having to hide who you are? Are you better on the field? No, I mean, I took field? like five months off, so it was tough to get back. When I came out to the office, started training and signed with them and started playing, it was really tough to to get back and get fit and then to stay healthy. I mean, like my body kept breaking down and had like little hamstring injuries or ankle injuries. Mm-hmm. So the first season was tough, but um, this season I've just been able to enjoy our success. I mean, we have a great team and I've been able to contribute and, and really enjoyed it. And I, I enjoy going to work more. You know, I've always enjoyed like the actual work side of of you know, my whole life of going in and training hard and working hard. But now I can actually enjoy like the locker room and and being teammates with people and and that kind of stuff. So um, I think it's just it's made me a better player. I think when you're bet- when you're happy, you're you're obviously doing your job. Sure. Uh, and you're more efficient, and you just enjoy it more. So you're probably playing better, or or whatever you do, I think you're going to do it better. So um, I'm sure it shows, but but I just 
feel like I enjoy it more. So tell us more about that. I mean, what is different about the locker room now? Well, there's still, like, we still have tons of fun. There's banter and all that ridiculous stuff that still goes on. It's just people now are a little bit more educated and realize they can't say certain things and have to be more sensitive to different types of people, uh, different sexual orientation and races and all that stuff. So, um, you know, I think that the sports world is changing. I, I can't speak for, you know, other sports just because I'm only, uh, you know, I'm, I'm only in the Galaxy locker room. Right. But, uh, you know, ours is a very accepting place and a, and a, and a very healthy place where it just creates an environment that where people can succeed and be themselves, and, and I think it shows with our play on the field. And, and um, I don't know, I'm expecting that a lot of locker rooms around the world are kind of transforming into that kind of atmosphere, or I hope so at least. You know, I think we've come a long way with sports and with the LGBT community in sports, so, um, you know, I'd like to say that myself and, and, and a number of other people have been part of that and, and I think it's great that things are finally starting to change. Yeah, and you know, I have to believe that soccer as a profession is probably more mature than some of the other professions like basketball and football. I mean, I certainly read a, a whole lot less concern about you when you came out than I did about Jason Collins or Michael Sam. What do you think? I mean, is, is soccer ahead of the game here? I don't know. I mean, I, I would... If you would have asked me that question two years ago, I would have said no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I think that uh, there wasn't a locker room that I was in that wasn't extremely homophobic before I came out. So, yeah, I think they're kind of all the same in, in that way. I think a lot of men are the same, especially athletes, that when they get in the locker room, sometimes they get a little bit carried away. But um, I can just say from my experience being out and competing with these guys and being myself and open with these guys, they've, you know, very much respected me and treated me like any other teammate and have been sensitive to who I am, and, and I'm the same with them. So uh, I think all sports are the same, and I think Jason's experience once he went back, and, and well, I know Jason's experience of him going back has been very positive because he's a friend of mine. Um, so I think it's just a matter of being a good person and being in your locker room and being open with people. I think people will respect that. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think the old adage that uh, my husband always says is that people will be as comfortable with you as you are with yourself. Uh, is really a good place to at least start. So talk about what led you to write this book. What, what was the motivation? Um, I think that mainly came from just people's reaction of my, the letter I posted on social media and, and the reaction from you know, kids and, and going to speaking events and speaking with kids that read the letter. And so I just thought it would be great to add all the details and to go into more depth and to uh, um, kind of just get it all out there. And in the end, it was very therapeutic for me and so you got a chance to work with Eric Marcus, who's a pretty well-known author in the LGBT community. He's, he's really done a lot of great work. Talk about the experience of working with him. And, you know, you mentioned that this was uh, a good process for you, almost cathartic. Tell us more about that. Uh, I mean, Eric came and stayed with me in L.A., and we just talked about everything and broke down everything and made a huge outline. And obviously we couldn't put it all in the book because then it would be too long. But, but we just, um, you know, talked from everything I can remember and uh, when I, when you do that you bring up a lot of memories and you kind of work through those and those emotions and as you're bringing those emotions out to the reader you know you want people to be, to be able to understand the story so you have to kind of remember what all that stuff felt like and, and um, you know that's how it was for me it was very therapeutic and, and, and Eric kind of talking me through things and, and relating you know we talked about other stories that we heard or other people's experiences and compared them to mine and and to his, and so it was. It was a great process for me. I would say last year when I was going, coming back and playing soccer, and having to be like one of the, being the only gay man in my locker room at least, and 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 having to be a role model when I don't quite think I was ready to be. When I was kind of just, you know, figuring out how to be a gay man and mm-hmm. and how to get back into sports and be just a professional soccer player. So um, it was great for us to be able to talk about all this stuff. I think while I was going through that process because it, I think it prepared me for this year and for the release of the book. Awesome. Sounds like it was just a totally amazing experience for you. So you're going to be on the road talking to young people. You were just here in Santa Rosa this last month. What are your hopes for the book? What do you want to accomplish? And, and what are the messages you want young people to hear? Yeah, I mean, I, when I go and I speak with kids, I kind of talk to them about my experience and, and what kind of fear I had and what I wish I would have done differently. I don't try to give advice just because 
I know everyone's experience is different and everyone coming out in time is maybe not immediate and maybe they need to plan. Um, but I just kind of share uh, my stories and, and explain that I wish I had more faith in my family. You know, my family loves me so much. I wish I had more faith that they would um, accept me. You know, I also talk about how I wish I would have spoken to someone, you know, whether it was a uh, therapist or, or someone just away from my school or my sports where I could just kind of share things. So, um, you know, I try to, stay, again, stay away from advice because I don't know if I always have the, the greatest advice. I kind of leave that stuff up to Eric Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> but um, just talk more about my experience, my experience in the locker room and then coming back and, and the kind of support that I had and, and what kind of things I, that I tried to focus on when I came back. Well, I think sometimes just being a good role model and sharing your story so that others can see what's possible is probably the best form of advice you could offer anybody. So good for you. I know you're involved with Glisten and doing some work to promote their mission, again, particularly targeting young people. Talk about that. Uh, Glisten was actually a part of one of the reasons why I went back to soccer. I was at a Nike event in Portland that uh, Glisten and Nike were kind of co-sponsoring, and there was about 500 kids that were part of their GSAs, and uh, I went to go speak uh, with a panel. There was like six of us that spoke to the kids and told us, and we talked about our experiences and coming out and going back to soccer, or just about thinking of going back, and at the end, the kids were asking questions like, uh, you know, Robbie, I'm going home tomorrow, like, what kind of stuff should I do to change things, and, and, and I think Nike was expecting the kids to get more out of this this panel, but actually, I did. I actually learned a lot from a lot of these kids just because they were. I, I learned a lot, or I think I, I took so much back. I took so much from their emotion and their confidence and their and their excitement to kind of change what was going on and change the future and to to create an environment that was more accessible to the LGBT community. So I kind of took that away. And I was like, you know, I have this, this this opportunity to be a professional soccer player and to be an out man in the sports arena and to have this platform that. I wouldn't even have to say anything. I just have to be on the soccer field and get to do something that I love. And uh, all these kids would, would love to have this opportunity. So I kind of felt like I was being a coward. And, and after that event, that's actually when I decided to, to truly go back to to the Galaxy and sign with them. So um, and get, Glisten has played a, a huge role in my life, obviously. And you know, I've done different events for Glisten now and spoken with uh, a number of their their, their uh, the kids that they, work, that they work with that are part of their GSAs in different high schools. Um, but it's a great organization, and you know, anything that, that empowers kids to, and teaches kids, and not just gay kids, but straight, straight students, um, uh, you know, how to, how to create a safe environment in their schools, I think is you know, so positive and, and something that I wish I would have been part of when I was younger. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And Glisten is just an absolutely amazing organization. They're doing great work. And the proof is very clear. GSAs make a huge difference, both for straight kids and gay kids. So I'm, I'm thrilled to see that you're involved in that. The book is called Coming Out to Play, and it's currently available at every online bookseller that you will find, as well as in some local bookstores. We'll have some links on our website at outbeatnews.com. Com. Robbie Rogers, thanks so much for spending time with us tonight. Congratulations on your new book, and have a wonderful 2015. Thanks, you too. It was great to, great to talk to you. And we'll be back with more right after this. Did you know that there are more than 2,000 people living with HIV and AIDS in Sonoma County? 500 of them don't know they have it, so neither do their partners. HIV is a treatable condition, but it's important to find out early if you have the virus. Knowing your HIV status can be life-saving for you and those you love. There's an easy way to find out your status. Face-to-Face offers free, anonymous HIV testing with results in just 20 minutes. Visit the Face-to-Face office at 873 2nd Street in Santa Rosa. No appointment is needed. For more information, call 544-1581 or visit f2f.org. We want you to know your status. Face-to-face, ending AIDS in Sonoma County, 20 minutes at a time. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News in Depth on KRCB-FM Windsor, Santa Rosa. I'm Greg Moralia. Our next two guests are a married couple from Minneapolis and are both ordained pastors in a Christian church. Now, that might not sound terribly unusual, except that they are both openly gay men. Religion is a common challenge for many gay people when they discover their sexuality is at odds with their faith. But pastors Obi Ballinger and his husband Javen Swanson have found peace and acceptance with their faith 
and they're now leading others to do the same. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, and happy holidays to you as well. We appreciate your time. Start out by telling us a little about yourselves, uh, where you grew up, and and how you two met and came together. So this is Javen. Um, we both grew up in Minnesota. Uh, I grew up in the central part of the state in a very small town of about 800. And uh, from there, so I grew up there, went to elementary and high school in the same building there, and then um, went to college at a uh, Lutheran liberal arts college in southern Minnesota. Um and then went on to seminary at Yale Divinity School, which is where I met Obi. And as Javen said, I also grew up in uh, Minnesota. I grew up on a farm in southeastern Minnesota. And um, similar to Javen, went to a small Lutheran liberal arts college, but found my way into the United Church of Christ when I was there. And um, then went on to seminary at Yale Divinity School. Uh, and was a year into my studies when Javen started and when we met. Wow. So I know religion can play a real part and, and can create a huge conflict for folks, young people in particular, when they discover their sexuality and, and making that decision to come out. How was it for both of you? Well, this is Javen. I think for me, um, when I started recognizing that I thought I was gay, I remember praying all the time that it wasn't true and that that I could change and that that would be uh, that that would go away. And so for me, the struggle that I experienced was primarily internal for um, several years through high school and even much of college um, before I finally came out to myself and then started coming out to the people around me. So I think I I don't remember hearing explicitly like anti-gay rhetoric in church when I was growing up, but I just had this sense that that it wasn't okay. And I think it was all related somehow to my, I'm not sure where that religious idea that it was wrong came from, mm-hmm. but uh, that's, that's what I experienced. And it was mostly an internal struggle. I had a similar experience of being active in the church when I was in high school, and that was about the same time I was coming out and similarly prayed to not be gay for several years because I didn't have any role models at the time of what it meant to be uh, a faithful person and uh, queer identified. I was in Montana at the time and in Great Falls, Montana, even though it's a large city by Montana standards, it's a pretty small town uh, still. So I didn't have many examples and I was at a church where there were people who were vocally anti-gay. I was living with my grandmother at the time, and my grandmother had a gay son who came out to her uh, in the early 90s. And she and my grandfather went through several years of wondering, you know, was it their fault or uh, what was wrong with this? And then they came around and they became strong advocates and leaders within the PFLAG movement in Montana. She was a strong advocate for LGBT equality, and she was also a strong woman of faith. So I I never had an explicit conversation with her before coming out about how she held those two together, but she was an example for me of how to to support her gay son and and be pro-LGBT and also how to be an active Sunday school teacher and uh, weekly church attender. When I came out, she was the first person I told, and I, I thought at, the point, at that point, I thought I had to choose between being an active church person or being uh, okay mm-hmm. with myself as a gay man. And uh, she told me, well, there's no reason you can't be both. Um, I, I knew that I was called to be a pastor from even when I was in high school, and I thought that I would have to say no to that if I was going to be gay and live uh, out. And she said, well, of course you can. You can do both. Wow. So that, that must have played a huge part in terms of both messaging to you uh, to give you some sense of security that she'd be a safe person to tell and that you had some reasonable belief you'd be accepted. Yeah, as I remember the fog of coming out, and anyone who's gone through the coming out experience might remember your first conversation. Um, you've not 
been this transparent with someone before and so there's all the internal demons that are saying oh even though they're accepting of other people they won't accept you and uh, but yes looking right. back on I had every reason to believe uh, that she would respond as she did very favorably right so it sounds like both of you really had a pretty early call to become pastors uh, and faith leaders did it ever were you that you wouldn't be successful in pursuing that vocation? I think that was especially true for me, um, being Lutheran. Um, I, um, I was discovering my call to ministry and um, the truth about my sexuality sort of simultaneously in college. And I think somehow trusted that both of those things were calls from God. I, I knew that my call to ministry was from God, and life was so good once I was honest with myself and started to come out to myself and others and started dating Obi. Life was so good, I, I trusted that that couldn't be anything but a gift from God. And so I trusted that both things were from God. And, um, and so even when, at that point, the Lutheran Church the ELCA that I'm a part of was at that point not ordaining openly gay. Well, they were they weren't ordaining non-celibate LGBT clergy. Somehow, I trusted that it was going to work out for me um, because I trusted that both things were from God. And then, as it turns out, the ELCA took a churchwide vote in 2009 that opened the door to non-celibate ordained clergy. And so that was all the doors opened at exactly the right time for me to walk through them and pursue my call and live into the relationship I feel called to live in. I was in a Lutheran church when I was in high school. My grandmother was Lutheran, the same tradition as Javen, ELCA Lutheran. But when I was in college, I quickly found my way into the United Church of Christ for a number of reasons, but among them was the fact that it would be more accepted for me to be a gay pastor in a relationship in the United Church of Christ rather than the ELCA. It didn't turn out this way because the doors opened just the right way for Javen, but I didn't want to have my ministry sort of identified as continually about the fight for LGBT equality. Mm -hmm. While that's a part of what I do, I think that my vocation as a, as a pastor, both of our vocations as a pastor, is working for justice in a variety of situations. And I didn't want to use all my energy in beating on the doors to force the church to open. I decided for a number of reasons to go to a place like the United Church of Christ, where the doors were already open and had been for decades. Yeah, that makes sense. So how is it exactly that you two met at school? Was this, I'm assuming this is a fairly small school? Yeah, there were 150 students or so at Yale Divinity School. Yeah, the school is an ecumenical Christian institution. So there are denominational seminaries. Um, so there are ELCA Lutheran seminaries, and there are United Church of Christ seminaries. But then there are also ecumenical schools where um, folks from a wide variety of denominations and traditions study together. Um, and so we happen to be at an ecumenical institution where there are all sorts of people from almost every Christian mm -hmm. denomination you can think of. So that was how we, that was how we met. Um, and we had classes together. I think we met in New Testament Greek at 8 a.m., um, and, uh, and had a lot of classes together, um, my first semester there. So the first, the fact that we were both from Minnesota was one of the things that gave us an immediate connection. There was cultural overlap for us. And then we soon discovered all sorts of other, uh, compatibilities that really turned into a wonderful thing. And the school, the seminary was a very pro-gay setting. Um, we had a lot of friends who were queer, and there was support from almost all the students there, I would say, for Javen and I as our relationship 
took on a more public form over the years that we were there. That's one thing I want to say is that um, so often the message that people hear is that religious people and that Christians in particular are anti-gay. Mm-hmm. Um, and the school where we, you know, where we went to seminary was the vet, it wasn't even a conversation there. I mean, it wasn't even something that there was debate about there. Um, even while some of our denominations were debating it, those of us who were at the school, it really wasn't a live conversation. Like it wasn't anything that was controversial here in the twin cities and the church circles that we, that we kind of run around in, there really isn't much of a, there's plenty, there are places definitely where this is a conversation. And I want to say that there are so many welcoming Christian communities especially if you live in a large city, you can find a place where, um, where you will be welcome and accepted and not a source of controversy. That's great. That's really, really great. And the two of you got married, so obviously your relationship has been pretty public from the beginning. Talk about what that day was like. We got married in the seminary chapel. It wow. was Javen's graduation weekend, and since his family was going to be out there anyway, we decided we would add another celebration to it, and we wanted to get married among hundreds of our classmates and friends and professors, all who had seen our relationship uh, come into you know come into being and had supported us along the way. Mm-hmm. So I like to describe our wedding as an Amish barn raising because <laughs> it, it was this collaboration of a number of friends and uh, and mentors and leaders for us. We had three different pastors preside in different parts of our wedding. One friend donated all the flowers, one friend carved us rings, one friend gave the photography pieces. It was It was a high festive worship service that was over an hour long because we included communion in it, but it was hundreds of our friends and family members in this sacred space, the chapel that had been the heart of our seminary life for three years. And it felt like the whole community was holding us up and holding us together and blessing us for the decades ahead. It was a remarkable experience, and I can't imagine a better way to get married. Incredible. I I mean, it really, really sounds magical. And it also feels like a lot of faith traditions are really evolving. They're really growing to provide full acceptance of LGBT people and to allow things like marriages to occur. But there are others that are really feeling like they're digging their heels in. Uh, What's your sense about the future? I think we live in a time of dramatic change throughout society and within the church. Certainly there are a number of challenges that are facing churches and denominations. Um, The church is no longer kind of at the seat of power and many of our denominations are adjusting to new realities and our churches are adjusting to new realities which have us more on the margins of society and at the edges rather than at the center. Javen and I would say that's a good thing, ultimately, but it is an adjustment. And some denominations, some churches, uh, and traditions have fought that marginalizing experience by doubling down on their hard-nosed rules and clear boundaries between who's in and who's out because they've sensed that that might be a way forward in this postmodern time. We don't believe that is actually a good way forward, but um, that's one of the things I think driving some church traditions to be all the more adamant about who's in and who's out. They're trying to draw the boundary lines very clearly in order to be heard in a world where churches aren't receiving much notice um, for anything good, certainly. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
I actually think the trend is that across the board, um, there's a move toward more openness and welcome. Absolutely. Um, I think that there are certainly exceptions to that, but I think just looking at the trend in the last 10 years, um, I think now almost all the mainline Protestant denominations um, have have made policy changes that are um, opening up the doors to LGBT people. There's still more to be done and denominations that have more work to do, but um, I see very little evidence that uh, that there's a move backward um, on these issues. Mm-hmm. Well, those policy changes at the denominational level wouldn't be possible if there wasn't cultural change within congregations. And the change at the policy level reflects the changing culture within congregations, and it fosters and spurs that change to continue. Good. Uh, certainly, a lot more work to be done there. Uh, this is this is usually the time of year where people begin to contemplate New Year's resolutions. And I know, and I'm sure you know, many LGBT people who were not able to reconcile their faith tradition with their sexual orientation, and, and they made a choice. And many people walked away from faith. And I've talked to so many folks over the years, young people even today, who really miss that. Uh, but they don't feel like they can go back because of the of the messaging they heard at the pulpit and and what their faith tradition used to say about their sexuality. For those people maybe who are contemplating a resolution about getting back into a faith tradition or getting reconnected with their their faith, what advice would you give them to start? I think that um, for for people who are feeling like they can, make the step into the church again um, without experiencing, you know, post-traumatic stress, that there are lots and there are more options today than there ever have been. And there will be only more and more uh, welcoming places for people. A good place to start is there's a a great organization, uh, the National LGBTQ Task Force um, has has an Institute for Welcoming Resources that works particularly in faith communities. They have a great tool on their website um, where you can find a welcoming congregation um, in your area. And um, these welcoming congregations are mostly mainline Protestant churches um, that have made an explicit statement of welcome to LGBTQ people. Um, so that means these congregations have gone through a process where they've talked about it as a congregation, um, and they've educated themselves and they've decided to say, we, um, know that LGBT people have been hurt by the church in the past. And this is a place where, uh, you are welcome. Um, and so those are congregations that at least, um, at least, at, you know, they've made a commitment. Now, some congregations are still living into what it means to be a welcoming congregation, um, and not all of them have it figured out. But that's a good place to start. Um, Obi, what would you say about it? I would say for everyone who is turning over a new leaf, there are congregations that are turning over a new leaf as well, and congregations that are learning how to be more welcoming and affirming um, in my congregation, we're trying to figure out each each Sunday, each day we gather, how to live into a statement we say each week, no matter who you are or where you are in life's journey, you are welcome here, which is something that is used throughout the United Church of Christ and maybe beyond. I think that in my admittedly biased opinion, the church, however broken it is, is also a place of deep community of compassion and sharing. It's a place where we can be vulnerable and in the best churches be held and affirmed in our humanity, whether or not we have it all together. Churches are human institutions, and as such, they will reflect the best and the worst of their human participants. But we believe that the Spirit of God in the sense of love and grace 
is also present there. And churches and communities of faith more broadly are places where we are inspired to live up to the better angels of our nature. And that would be the reason I would, I encourage people now to be involved in faith communities because we're better together than we might be by ourselves. And the thing I I would add too is that um, as Christians, our theology is really, our theology really supports um, the move towards openness and welcome. And I think often we've lost sight of that, but we just came through a season where we remember the birth of Christ, um, who was born not in um, a palace uh, among insiders, among the people who uh, we expected, where we expected to find the Messiah, um, but it was someone who was an outsider, um, who who couldn't be born in a traditional setting, but was born in a manger, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and uh, among the you know out of wedlock, and we're about to come up on the season of Epiphany, where we remember that, uh, or where we celebrate that the message of Christ is not just for insiders, but it's a message open to everyone. You know, all of this is built into our theology, and it's not radical. These aren't radical ideas or, like, leftist Christianity, you know, like, this is pretty mainstream stuff. And I don't know how our traditions have become so twisted that we lose sight of those things, um, but it's all right there. <laughs> and so, so the truth is that our our churches are uh, living into the the truth of our tradition by becoming more welcoming. And so, uh, it's not like we're doing we're trying something uh, crazy or new, but we're just trying to live into the craziness that is our Christian faith. Well said. Wonderful. Pastors O.B. Ballinger and Javen Swanson, thank you so much for sharing your insights and for your leadership. And I'm sure that you're helping many, many, many hearts and souls uh, heal as they move forward uh, in their own faith traditions. I hope so. Thank you for the invitation, Greg. Happy New Year and Happy New Year to all your listeners. And that brings us to the end of our hour. My thanks to our guest tonight, professional soccer star Robbie Rogers and pastors O.B. Ballinger and Javen Swanson. Don't forget to download the new KRCB app. You can listen to all of your favorite KRCB shows like Outbeat Radio on your mobile device from anywhere in the world with internet access. The app is free and available now at the Apple and Android app stores. Tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio. From all of us on the Outbeat Radio team, Happy New Year, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. You can listen to our shows on demand on iTunes and on our website at OutbeatNews.com. And be sure to follow us all week long on our Facebook page and Twitter feed for the latest LGBT news from here in the North Bay and beyond. Support for Outbeat Radio on KRCB-FM comes from members and from General Organics, sustainably produced plant foods and supplements for modern cultivation. General Organics fertilizers are veganic, vegan and organic, produced from botanical extracts and natural minerals for plant nutrition at the molecular level. You'll find them on the web at genhydro.com. You're listening to KRCB-FM Windsor Santa Rosa, the new 91, with news, new music, and more. This is KRCB. It's just before 9 p.m. Stay with us. Climate One is next.